Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Fred Youngling, and I'm the interim head of the Science and Engineering Library. I'll take my glasses off here and then take this. And it's my privilege to welcome you to our quarterly lecture series entitled Synergy, Explorations in Science and Society. The purpose of this lecture series is to provide a platform for the UCSC and Santa Cruz communities to learn about the exciting research in science and engineering currently in progress at UCSC. Many people were involved in the production of today's event, including Terry Hagen, Molly Jaffe, Cynthia Johns, Danielle Kane, Gus Lane, Peggy McNicholas, Vince Navoa, Ferry Renema, uh, Weiwei and the SNE Library Access Services students, and undoubtedly other people I apologetically have forgotten to mention. And I'd especially like to thank University Librarian Virginia Steele for, our, uh, for her ongoing support of our efforts. We are interested in hearing your thoughts and comments and any suggestions you might have for future speakers. Comment cards are available on the welcome table outside, or you can speak to any one of the SNE Library staff. Speaking of the welcome table, um, if you didn't stop by in your way in, please make sure you take a moment on your way out so that you can pick up copy, copies of articles by today's featured speaker, Dr. Mark Mangle. And you can also pick up your very own Synergy Lecture Series post-it notes. And we also have a sign-in sheet for those of you who wish to be notified by email about upcoming lectures. We have created a web page for our quarterly lecture series, which includes a list of past and future speakers. Our next scheduled lecture will be given by chemistry professor Pradeep Musharak in fall quarter 2007. It's my particular pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Professor Mark Mangle of the Department of Applied Mathematics and Statistics in the Jack Baskin School of Engineering. Professor Mangle earned his BS in physics and an MS in biophysics from the University of Illinois and his PhD in Applied Mathematics and Statistics with a focus on mathematical biology from the University of British Columbia. He later moved to the University of California, Davis, where he was a professor for eight years in the Department of Mathematics and another eight years in the Department of Zoology, Section of Evolution and Ecology. During that time, he served as chair of the Mathematics Department for five years and was founding director of the Center for Population Biology. Since 1996, we have been lucky to have Professor Mangle with us here at UCSC where in addition to his teaching and research with the Department of Applied Math and Statistics, he has also served at various times as director of the Geographic Information Systems La Laboratory, the Associate Vice Chancellor, Planning and Programs, and since 2002, the director of the Center for Stock Assessment Programs, Stock Assessment Research, excuse me, which is a partnership between UCSC and the Santa Cruz Laboratory of the National Marine Fisheries Service. Throughout his academic career, Professor Mangle has produced a remarkable record of publishing great numbers of scientific articles, several books, numerous honors and awards, visiting positions at numerous other institutions of higher learning and research, and service on many academic, federal, and international committees. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Mangle, who will speak to us about why we age, what makes us age, and what can be done about it. And I also want to pre present him with a Synergy Certificate, and thanks for his speaking here today. Thank you very much, and of course, thank everybody for coming. Uh, these remarkable fish are also a subject of my own research, uh, which I won't be able to talk about much today. We've just published a paper on them, so if you'd like to learn about fish that live uh, more than 200 years and why and how they do it, write to me and I'll send you a reprint. Uh, what I'm really going to talk about today is the, the topic that, that Fred uh, mentioned. I'm going to begin with a little bit about uh, mathematics and biology. We've recently come back from Oxford. And, and a few weeks ago, we were at a dinner party, and I sat next to 
uh, a person on my right whose husband was a renowned neurophysiologist. And she said, what do you do? I said, mathematical biology. And of course, I cannot do it with an appropriate British upper crust accent, but she said, mathematics and biology, how extraordinary. Uh, I think not, actually, but I will try to make the case for it. Then I need to define a few terms so that we all have the same notions of what we mean by aging. And then I'll get into the meat of the topic, which is why, what, and what we can do about it. And then I'll give you a few conclusions. <clears throat> so I'd like to emphasize that actually, as much as giving very specific quantitative predictions in all of the sciences, mathematics provides a framework for us to think about problems. And this is true as much as it is in physics as it is in biology. But in biology, what mathematics really does is, is give, give us a framework for qualitative reasoning. And I will try to point out briefly in the talk a few cases where questions in either applied mathematics or statistics uh, arise. Uh, put another way, uh, one might say that if you just collect facts, collect facts, you'll discover nothing. Uh, the person in the lower corner there is uh, Peter Medawar, Nobel Prize winner in immunology, and he uh, will appear later in the talk as well. And the person in the uh, upper right-hand corner is, of course, Galileo, who realized that in, under, in order to understand nature, we must speak the language of mathematics. I'd like to offer, to begin, some definitions of what we're talking about. There are three definitions that are commonly used when we think about aging. The first one is the one that we are all personally familiar with. That is a physiological decline in some measure of performance. The second one is one that is really used in demography, which is the statistical study of vital rates in populations. And that is an increase in the chance of death or a decline in the chance of reproduction because survival and reproduction are what determine the dynamics of populations with age. So that's a demographic definition. And then finally, in evolutionary biology, we think of aging as a decline in the expectation of future genetic representation. That is, as the possibility of putting genes further into the population declines, an organism is aging. <clears throat> we are all familiar with the physiological definition of aging, and I could have actually had a, an entire set of 60 slides giving you different examples, but here's one in which we look at, as a function of age, the uh, vital capacity, the forced uh, lung capacity of individuals, and, and we're all familiar with this as we go to the, the physician each year for our physicals. I'm really not going to talk about the physiological definition of aging much more in this talk. Now, the demographic definition of aging deals with two aspects. The first is what we might call life expectancy or mean lifespan. So that imagines focusing on a group of individuals born in a particular year and asking what is the average age of death of that group of individuals. And this is the kind of uh, picture we're all familiar with. Uh, on the x-axis here, I have uh, years going from uh, about 1900 to 2000. On the y-axis, this average age of death, and we see it rising for both females and males. Males traditionally live uh, shorter lives than females, going back uh, more than 100 years. So this is mean life expectancy. Another interesting and, and perhaps uh, even more intriguing definition is what is the potential maximum lifespan. Now if you ask most demographers, they will tell you the maximum lifespan of humans is 120 years. I actually think that that is a relic of the Judeo-Christian heritage. And I have some slides at the very end, which I can talk about if, if you want to know about that. As it, it so happens that the world record holder for maximum lifespan lived 122 years. Uh, this is uh, Madame uh, Calme. She was born in 1875. She cut a record, as you see, when she was 121. <laughs> now, 
the, the trouble with maximum lifespan is, of course, verifying what the age is. Uh, there, there are uh, records of 150, 160 years from Georgia at the time of Stalin's rule of the Soviet Union because he was from Georgia and the Georgians thought that if they could demonstrate great ages, that would please Stalin. So verifying true maximum uh, age is very difficult. I think right now the world record uh, holder, the living world record holder is at about 113 or 118 years. So there's a question about maximum lifespan. Now both demography and evolutionary theory deal with a sur the survival curve and I will show you a number of curves such as this one in the, uh, the rest of the talk and I want to spend a little bit of time highlighting a few features. On the x-axis again we have the lifespan of individuals who were born in a particular cohort. Here we're looking at individuals born in 1800, 1900, or 2000. And on the y-axis we either will have the fraction of individuals surviving or the percentage of individuals born in that year surviving. And there are three curves here. One for 1800 shows a decline very uh, rapid and consistent like that. And of course this is uh, due to infectious diseases and, and uh, many other childhood ailments at that time. Notice that uh, in 1900 there's a great difference for uh, young people in survival. And by 2000 the curve it, just dips a little bit, so childhood mortality has dropped off uh, considerably, and the curve is really flat for a very long time. This is an exaggeration, but the, the point of this very uh, uh, great flatness is that very few people are dying during those ages. During this, this interval of time, very few uh, people are dying. And then there is a very rapid decline. And, and this is, again, and I'll, I'll actually show you a formula and some, uh, some transitions associated with this, but this is another way of thinking about what aging is, is describing. That is, the chance of surviving from one year to the next here is very high, whereas here it's much lower because from one year to the next there's a big drop in the curve. And notice I, all these curves hit the x-axis at 120, where there are no survivors left. That's once again this magical maximum lifespan of 120 years. So here, here are two examples of such curves. Uh, this, is a cur uh, this is from a book that was published in uh, 1950 that shows survival curves in 1901 and 1946. So again, age on the x-axis. Uh, fraction of survivors on the y-axis, and one predicted for 1975. Now, now the way that these, these such curves are constructed is through the use of statistics, by collecting statistics on populations and then making estimates for the shape of these curves. I'll point out too that these only end up at a, a maximum age of about 100. Here are some more survival curves that go from uh, very early times through a, a variety of uh, U.S. and British periods. And then what demographers call the ultimate survival curve or the rectangularization of the survival curve, which is the notion, and I do not necessarily subscribe to this, I only report what they say, we should all basically live lives like salmon which is, right, 100% survival, everything is fine until we hit maximum lifespan and then drop to zero. So many demographers ask, how do we make this curve more and more rectangular? And you can kind of see that it's becoming more and more rectangular. Now, in order to, to more specifically characterize these transitions from one year to the next, we, uh, we uh, deal with something called the mortality rate at age A. So there will be just a few equations in the talk. Uh, for those of you who don't uh, feel comfortable with the equations, they're not essential for f 
following what happens, but they're kind of helpful if you know a little bit of math. So imagine that we are following a cohort born, let's say, in 1962. So we measure how many individuals are alive at each of the ages zero onward. So if they were born in 1962, it would now be a cohort that could be up to 45 years old. And, and we know that however many individuals we have at age A, we have to have fewer individuals or that many at age A plus one because we're just following all the individuals born in a particular year. And we define the mortality rate in the following way, that we say, well, the number of individuals at age A plus one is the number at age A divided by the more, uh, E, which is a number, and if you don't know what E is, think of it as like 2.7, good enough. Okay, it's some number, and we, and we raise that number to the power m. So the bigger m is, the bigger the denominator is, and the smaller that is, and the smaller n of a plus 1 is. Now, uh, if one actually knows how to do logarithms, then there's a formula for figuring out m in terms of these two pieces of data. So when we compute mortality curves from those survival curves, so now we take those survival curves and we ask what is the fractional change from one year to the next, we see things that look like this. So here are mortality rates in Sweden. Uh, ages uh, are binned here, so you see 0 and then 5 to 9, 15 to 19 and so forth, for different periods of time beginning in 1751 and going up to uh, the 1930s. And this is the the uh, fraction of, more t of uh, individuals dying. And notice that this is a logarithmic scale, so that's 0 .001, 0 .001, 0.001, 0.01, 0.1, and so forth. Now, there are two really interesting things about this curve. The first is these are all increasing at later ages. That is the definition of aging, an increase of mortality rate at later ages. The second is that these curves all seem to bottom out right around eight years old or so. And in fact, we have known for a very, very long time that it is safest to be a prepubescent girl. Mortality curves from around the world all bottom out right around eight years old for females. And nobody knows why that is. In the 1990s, we actually made a discovery because better data collection was happening. Is that, and the discovery of the 1990s was that at the very oldest of old ages, these curves may not continue to rise, but they may actually begin to level off, as I've shown here, or even go down. <clears throat> so th this purple line is the line continuing to rise. And then here are two different statistical fits for one that would uh, <coughs> slow down or one that would actually decline. So this is called the leveling or the plateauing of mortality curves in the very oldest of the old. Again, we don't know why this is happening, but we do know that it has incredibly important policy implications because those mortality rates at the later ages feed back into medical care and social services for the oldest of the old. And depending on what the uh, mortality curve does, we might have a life expectancy that ranges from 80 to 90 years old. So predicting what mortality curves will be is actually a problem in applied mathematics versus estimating what they are from the data. And some of my own work is trying to predict what these mortality curves look like. Okay, so now we're actually ready to start uh, the, the guts of the talk. The first topic is why do we age? Okay, now why we age and what causes us to age are actually two different subjects. So the first I want to talk about is what, why do we age? And I have never got to do this. That is, I have never had the opportunity to present a poem in one of my lectures. And I am delighted uh, that this, uh, the Synergy program has allowed me to present a poem. So here's the quick answer to why we age. The quick answer is, is in the first line of the poem. Few of them made it to 30. Okay. 
you could think of organisms as all the time having to make allocation and resource decisions. N not conscious decisions, but natural selection has led to allocation processes. And the only reason to maintain the, the organism far into late life and to have the resources shunted off for doing that if there's a, is, is if there's a reasonable chance of living to that age. If there is little or no chance of living to that age, there is little reason for an organism to, to save resources or to develop processes that will maintain it at that later age. Now, I was going to read the poem to you, but I decided not to, and, uh, because everybody here uh, can read. So, the quick answer is our ancestors' lives were short. Here come the more technical answers. In evolutionary biology, we think that there's a balance between mutations occur at the genome that cause damage and natural selection, which removes those genes and or individuals who are carrying those genes. Peter Medawar, whom we met earlier, recognized uh, more than 50 years ago that once an individual is past its reproductive period in life, mutations could accumulate in the genome, but there would be no way of removing them from the genome because all the reproduction had already taken place. So that Mutations which occur during reproductive lifespan, let's say a mutation which causes an individual to age very rapidly or to have weak bones, that takes place early in the reproductive lifespan will, in almost all of our history, lead to uh, higher death rates of individuals who are like that than such mutations that occur later in the lifespan. So it is this mutation accumulation, Medawar realized, which causes us to have a, a, a collection of late life diseases that express themselves only after our reproductive lifespan. Now this is not always true. For example, there can be other mutations that only express themselves if two recessive characters uh, two uh, individuals are carrying the recessive genes mate. One of the classic examples is uh, Huntington's chorea, which, uh, of which Woody Guthrie died. This is a classic recessive uh, disease following uh, Mendelian genetics. So both uh, father and mother have to be carriers of the recessive allele, and the offspring has to have both recessive alleles in order for the disease to develop. Uh, Woody Guthrie lived, lived to be age 56, and Arlo Guthrie, his son, uh, was inducted into the uh, Music Hall of Fame at age 60 this year because presumably he is not a, a double recessive carrier of this gene. So this is a case, in, actually, in which mutations express themselves after reproduction and consequently can be continued to be transmitted from one generation to the next. About five years after uh, Medawar wrote his paper, George Williams, an evolutionary biologist at Stony Brook, realized that things are even worse. Okay. Uh, but you can't uh, write that in the title of a scientific paper, so he called it antagonistic pleiotropy. Okay. <laughs> Pleiotropy uh, is a, a term in uh, genetics for, for meaning that genes have different effects at different points in the lifespan. And antagonistic means exactly what we think of as usually, that at one point it's good and at one point it's bad. So Williams realized that if there are genes which increase survival or reproduction during that reproductive period early in life, even if they cause disasters in post-reproductive life, there will be natural selection acting to increase those genes in the population. He gave the example of heart disease and pointed out that the same things that give us heart disease later in life are things that give us strong bones early in life. 
And those, those things that give us strong bones, again, particularly before the last 10,000 years of our history, were very, very valuable. Another example more recently appeared uh, concerning glaucoma, and you can imagine that in, that in, in again, our uh, early history, suppose there was an advantage to keen eyesight when you're young and in the reproductive period, even if it meant glaucoma at later ages. Well, since the chance of living to those later ages would be very small anyhow, individuals who had this advantage of keener eyesight when they're young would have an advantage for survival and or reproduction. About 10 years after uh, Williams and uh, Medawar, Bill Hamilton, who was an evolutionary biologist at Imperial College, uh, showed that they had to be right. So I won't go into any of the details, but the bottom line is, if a population is either stable or growing, then the notion of Williams about the, uh, of uh, Medawar about the accumulation of mutations post-reproduction, and that Williams about antagonistic pleiotropy must be correct. Uh, Hamilton's papers are exceptionally hard to read, so uh, although Williams wrote a lovely paper and uh, Medawar wrote a lovely essay, uh, I would not encourage any neophyte to begin with Hamilton's papers. <coughs> so, Hamilton actually illustrated this by, by looking at the advantage of an increase of one year in survival at a particular age in terms of overall growth of populations, either in the US in the, in the late 30s or Taiwan at the turn of the century. And so he, 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 it says here, fitness effect of a change in survival, by which he means what is the advantage of one additional uh, year of survival. And you see, until individuals become reproductive, things are constant because there are no offspring being produced. And then once we enter the reproductive phase, this, the advantage gets smaller and smaller because there's less and less chance of surviving to this particular age in the first place. And then once individuals are post-reproductive, there's no advantage to further survival in this very simple model. Now, I will say we understand much more now about the importance of grandparents and multi-generational things so that one should not interpret these too literally but rather as metaphors for understanding the bigger questions. We can't do experiments with humans, but we can do experiments with short-lived organisms such as Drosophila or Tribolium flower beetles, and we can actually confirm many of these ideas. Uh, there's somebody at, uh, at Irvine who will show up later, Michael Rose, who has done very much of this work. So here I show survival curves for male and female Drosophila bred under their normal conditions. And so you see survival, uh, percent surviving starting at 100 and then dropping off to zero at about 60 days. Or bred under delayed reproduction. So Drosophila can be thought of as reproducing more or less continuously. And what Rose did in these experiments was to remove eggs that were laid early on. So that individuals who laid eggs when they were uh, young had those eggs removed. And it was only the individuals who could continue to lay eggs when they were old, whose eggs were allowed to stay in the little vials. And the result of that was survival curves shifting to the right for individuals being able to still be alive in order to produce their offspring later in life. And there are many other examples of this phenomenon. So that is why we age. Now, what causes us to age is a slightly different topic, and I will uh, try to take an enormous subject and boil it down into two subtopics. One is oxidative damage, and the other is telomere shortening. So I will try to explain what each of these are and how they are associated with aging. <coughs> we all know that oxygen is essential for living. Oxygen is uh, essential in a number of ways. First, directly because molecular oxygen binds with hemoglobin and, and uh, myoglobin and is carried through our bloodstream to allow us to do all the things we need to do. In addition, uh, 
there are certain kinds of molecules called reactive oxygen species or reactive nitrogen species, and the, these are characterized by certain properties of electrons that are essential for all sorts of signaling and defensive processes in our body. So without these reactive oxygen species or reactive nitrogen species, we simply could not do all the things we need to do. Uh, this is a phagocyte attacking and requires uh, reactive uh, species in order to do its job. Here's a quick list of some of the things that, that free radicals are required for, beginning with development through neurotransmission, immune defense, as I mentioned, regulation of cell death, reg, uh, recovery from hypoxia, insulin. So these reactive oxygen species, these free radicals, are essential for the processes of life. Unfortunately, sometimes they end up in the wrong spot. And instead of being where they should be, they have kind of ended up in the wrong spot, and they create various kinds of cellular and molecular damage. We see such free radicals associated then with a variety of diseases. And the list goes actually much longer than this. Now, whether the free radical is a symptom or a cause of the disease varies according to the disease here. And I decided not to make the table uh, any more complicated than it is. But the point is that many diseases are associated with these free radicals, which are in some sense not doing the job that they were intended to, but have ended up in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And in fact, we're surrounded by sources of these free radicals. We actually have them endogenously, that is, our own bodies are creating them all the time, and uh, the, the uh, production of free radicals in our own bodies is actually enormous on a per molecule basis. And then there are exogenous sources, ultraviolet light, ionizing radiation, and so forth throughout. So the sources are all around us. And the bottom line is that oxygen, which is necessary for our survival, is also the thing that does damage to us. It damages our lipids through causing damage to the membranes. It damages our proteins. It damages our DNA. And this damage at the molecular level gets expressed at the organismal level as mortality. Again, I, I could show you many, many examples, but here's, here's an example of uh, protein damage in mice as a function of uh, relative age. And so we see a gradual increase in protein damage as the mice get older. <coughs> this is an example of <coughs> uh, motor performance as a, on the y-axis as a function of DNA damage. And with greater DNA damage, motor performance is reduced. This is an example uh, from humans of DNA damage and mortality rate from cardiovascular, or, uh, uh, yeah, cardiovascular disease. And so you see an increasing mortality rate associated with increasing levels of, of damage to DNA. In general, organisms that have longer lives have lower levels of damage. So here are two similar curves. They just have a variety of different species, although humans are uh, on this one. And you see in both cases that longer lifespan on the x-axis is associated with lower levels of damage. So the way that's achieved is through various kinds of defenses. One defense is through repairing DNA. And here is an example that shows on the x-axis a measure of DNA repair and on the y-axis lifespan. And once again, we see a, a very strong positive relationship between the ability to repair DNA and lifespan. Now, of course, an even better way of dealing with this oxidative damage would not be to let it happen in the first place, rather than letting it happen and then trying to repair it. Right? And 
we actually have a variety of cellular defenses against these free radicals. There are various kinds of enzymes called dismutases, which uh, deal with hydrogen uh, peroxide and superoxide, vitamin E, uh, ascorbic acid, uh, vitamin C, <coughs> and uh, other things are there to deal with the production of these free radicals so that they don't cause damage to us. And organisms which have more lifetime energy production, and energy production is involved with, is involved with creating these free radicals because energy production comes from using oxygen, organisms that have more lifetime energy production have more of these defenses so that they're able to reduce damage, uh, damaging uh, free radicals before they cause a problem. However, understanding the dynamics of damage are very complicated. This is a recent paper, and this is from this year, showing that obesity increases the risk of UV radiation-induced damage. So there's some interplay between carrying extra weight and, and the rate at which damage accumulates due to ultraviolet light. And mathematical models can once again help us sort out what is the source of this interplay and how we can understand it. That's oxidative stress. Now I will briefly talk about telomeres. And of course, any one of these topics could be an entire scientific or public lecture. Telomeres are found at the end of our DNA, and they're little repeats of nucleic acids, which are basically like cellular clocks. During the process of DNA replication, the very end of the DNA gets chopped off a little bit. And so you can think of, as this picture shows, the DNA and solid being the, the part that actually is important and is an information coding, and you don't want that to get chopped off during DNA replication. And the, the answer that, ha that we have is to have th these repeats that themselves get chopped off. And they get chopped off every time the DNA is replicated, which means every time a cell cycle, uh, cell division occurs. So we might think that in young individuals we have a, a distribution of telomeres, so this is length of telomeres, and these are uh, fraction, that is very peaked and is associated with very long telomeres. And as we age, the telomeres get shorter and shorter. As the telomeres get shorter and shorter, the cell senses that, and at some point, cells either stop dividing or actually commit suicide, apoptosis, because the, er the possibility of errors in DNA replication are so great. Now we actually also have an enzyme called telomerase, which adds these little repeats to our DNA, which in some sense then would allow one to reverse that direction and keep the cells replicating when they might not otherwise be. And here we have a picture, and these little red dots are the telomeres. In general, longer telomeres are associated with greater survival. This is a paper from this year that shows for uh, individuals of age 60, survival beyond age 60, or for individuals of age 75, survival beyond age 75, and, and the survival curves of individuals with longer telomeres or shorter telomeres. Longer telomeres or short, shorter telomeres. So that longer telomeres are associated with longer life. And actually in mice, those data were for people, in mice at least, short telomeres and or the deficiency of this enzyme which keeps the telomeres long are associated with high levels of cancer and with much shortened lifespans. So here are telomere deficient and telomerase deficient mice that uh, have very low, low survival rates compared to normal mice. So now we come to the topic that really brought everybody here. Right? 
sort of what can we do about it. Now, uh, again, I could have had an entire set of slides just showing pictures like this. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of, I think this came from uh, the AARP magazine last year. Um, these two actually came from the Australian magazine section last fall. Uh, this is, these two are very uh, much older and, and this book is about five years old. This guy is an MD, PhD. So question, what can we do about it? And, and that's really what the rest of the, the talk is about. Okay. Now, asking what can we do about it is a question of prediction. Okay. Prediction is difficult, especially about the future. Now, that of course is Yogi Berra, and I had always thought that Yogi Berra said that. Uh, it goes along with when you come to a crossroads, take it, and nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. However, when I was preparing this talk, I learned that perhaps Yogi Berra did not say it, but rather Niels Bohr did. And it's not nearly as funny <laughs> if Niels Bohr said it. So, everything I say now, you understand, is about the future, and who knows what the future holds. Okay, but I think there are, um, there are in, in uh, what would I call, in decreasing reliability of prediction, a number of things that we can do about aging. And I'll go through these in detail, but, but they range from avoid premature aging and death, genetic counseling, caloric restriction, antioxidant supplementation, telomerase therapy, and then what we might call a Manhattan Project for the, the aging. So for the young ones in here, the Manhattan Project was uh, the uh, enormous operation during World War II that allowed the United States to develop the atomic bomb before the, uh, the Germans or the Japanese. Okay, many sources of premature aging, and I should say too that I know that you're really actually not gonna like the message that comes out of all this. So here's the first slide you won't like, right? Many sources of premature aging and death are behavioral, which means we can do something about them because we control our behavior, right? So here's, here's a list from about 15 years ago of number of deaths, tobacco, diet or activity patterns, alcohol abuse. Right? Those are all things that are behavioral that affect our aging, that affect mortality rates. And they're things that we can easily change. So the first thing we can do about aging is affect our behaviors appropriately. Okay. Genetic counseling is also a possibility for cases in which uh, diseases are either relative, uh, recessive or have relatively simple genetics. I've already discussed Huntington Korea, which is sort of a post-maturity recessive uh, disease. There's a disease called Werner's syndrome, which is actually early aging. It is a very, very sad disease for parents and children, uh, but it's also uh, simple genetics. Uh, Bloom's syndrome is also simple genetics. And then, of course, various cancers we now are developing genetic markers for. Now, to be sure, genetic counseling raises all sorts of thorny ethical issues and this is not the place to get into them, but one of the ways of dealing with, with aging is to recognize that in some cases we can understand and identify the genes that cause aging and we can counsel people that they are carriers. Okay. We as, uh, as humans have recognized since about 400 BC that caloric restriction, that is controlling eatings, actually can affect uh, the rate of aging and survival. There are very few long-term studies with humans. There's a lot of anecdotal information. There's a lot of studies with small mammals. So this is, this is a collection of studies. So each one of these points represents a different study in which a small mammal, meaning a mouse or a rat, had, had its energy intake reduced relative to control animals. And so the 100% here means no energy intake reduce, uh, reduction, and the 40% means a reduction of 60% of calories. And the y-axis shows the increase in lifespan associated with that reduction of caloric intake. 
So that a 50% reduction of caloric intake corresponds to about a 50% increase in lifespan. What if this got drunk? Pardon me? It just got drunk. Well, sure, that's right. If, if it goes far enough to the left, it will start dropping. And, and there are lots of questions about how one does, does caloric restriction with, with simultaneously maintaining nutrient balance. Here's an example of, sur of survival curves of uh, two mice strains that, that uh, were separated at, at one year, one of which was allowed to feed at will and one of which was calorically restricted. And you can see that, that the effect of caloric restriction takes place almost immediately in terms of separating the survival curves. And in fact, through many, many empirical studies, we understand that there are a number of very consistent effects of caloric restriction. Um, extension of lifespan, which I've shown you. On the other hand, there's a reduction in fecundity of females because females need to accumulate resources in order to reproduce. And if caloric restriction occurs, they're accumulating those resources at a uh, slower rate. There are changes in metabolic rate. There is a delay in the accumulation of oxidative damage. As there's caloric restriction, the, the rate of uh, energy production and energy expenditure is lower. And there's an increase to various uh, forms of stress, increase in resistance. However, all of these studies have been with relatively short-lived species. In other words, these are mice which live of the order of four years in the laboratory. But in nature, no mice ever will live for four years. And the consequence of that is if one looks at the sort of relative average age of a study organism and how much caloric restriction increases that average age, well, if you have very short-lived organisms, mice or rats, then caloric restriction might indeed increase lifespan by 50%. On the other hand, if you have slightly larger mammals like dogs or cows, then caloric restriction may have a much less effect on lifespan. And one way of thinking about it is the following. That these animals have evolved in a world in which food is very patchy and sporadic, and so they need mechanisms which allow them to survive brief food shortages. And the consequence of that is that those mechanisms go into play when we give them not no food, but a reduced level of food. Whereas we and, and our domesticated animals have learned how to manipulate the environment to avoid, avoid uh, selection on those mechanisms for dealing with food shortages. And in fact, last year, since nobody could agree on this, uh, there was uh, what would I call it? A survey taken, right? And it's called the Delphi method when you ask a bunch of experts what they think is going to happen. So the question was, can dietary restriction increase longevity, particularly in humans? So there were um, 12 people polled in this paper. There was one vote for it's too early to decide. There were uh, five votes for yes, it can work. Okay, and there were six votes for no, it cannot work. Okay, so that's the best scientific advice we have right now. Uh, we know certainly that there are many advantages for eating well, but uh, to imagine extending lifespan by 50% is probably not one of them. Antioxidant sup supplements. <laughs> I work on um, Southern Ocean krill, Euphalsa superba which are becoming uh, a hot item because of krill oil. Krill live in, in the Southern Ocean. There's a lot of UV. They eat ice algae, which have very high levels of antioxidants. So the guys at Neptune's krill oil figured that if you supplement your, your diet with krill oil, you must be supplementing high levels of antioxidants. You're in good shape. Here's an example of uh, curcumin, the active ingredient and in, in antioxidant in cumin, reducing production of, uh, 
of free radicals. So what can we say about antioxidant supplementation? This is kind of uh, what I would say is kind of the Bible on free radicals in medicine and biology. Uh, the first edition appeared slightly more than 20 years ago. In their 1998 version, this is what Hollywell and Gutteridge thought about people who say, all you've got to do is take uh, antioxidants and you'll be fine, right? I, I especially liked the fact that they could, you know, write something like an expanding field attracts charlatans yeah, and so forth. So they had very little patience for antioxidant supplementation. On the other hand, we have lots of evidence that there's clearly a connection between antioxidants and uh, various aspects of longevity. So here are, uh, here's an example of epidemiology of heart disease and vitamin E. So on the uh, x-axis, um, <coughs> on, on the uh, x-axis, this is a funny kind of graph, we have the decreasing incidence of heart incident mortality. And on the y-axis, we have mortality due to heart disease. And this first panel, which looks exactly like the second panel, this is heart disease, and this is the blood level of vitamin E. So that the, the notion is, and we've all heard about this, right, the French diet or the Italian diet or the Mediterranean diet, having something to do with increasing longevity. So we have many epidemiological studies. On the other hand, we also know that humans have very high level of antioxidant defenses already. I showed some of this to you before. So this is our level of superoxide dismutase, something that deals with these free radicals which prevents them from causing damage, very, very high. Here, here is our level of vitamin E compared to other species and our level of various kinds of carotenoids, the compounds that, that give carrots their color, also antioxidants. So we already have very high levels of antioxidants. And consequently, it's not clear completely what will happen with um, taking high levels of antioxidants. But the literature gives us some warning levels. So <clears throat> first, antioxidants, if they're too much in the body, may actually start to cause oxidative damage. So here's an example with one of those superoxide dismutases um, dealing with hydrogen peroxide and superoxide. And this is the percent production. And notice that this curve goes up and then goes down. So prote protection goes up with the defense, but if you have too much, it begins to go down. And the guy who actually discovered this enzyme um, about 50 years ago just wrote a paper saying, we really don't know why this is happening. Okay. Similarly, here's, here's a recent paper that shows if you take a lot of vitamin C, that may be great. Vitamin C is another antioxidant. And the question, uh, or the, the result is, your body says, oh, I have a lot of vitamin C. There's no reason to produce vitamin C. So the consequence is that there's no longer internal production of vitamin C because you're supplementing it. So the antioxidant story is complex. And it even gets worse with the beta-carotene story. The beta-carotene story is this. Um, if you're a smoker and have caused damage from the carcinogens uh, associated with smoking, then beta-carotene acts as a pro-oxidant and causes additional oxidative damage. If you're not a smoker, it does not. Again, nobody really knows why this is. So in, in the most recent edition of their book, 2007, 10 years later, here's what Hollywell and Gutteridge said about how to minimize oxidative damage. See, and this is what nobody's really going to like because it's all these things our GP tells us to do anyhow, right? Maintain a good intake of fruit and vegetables, eat fish, don't eat too much red meat, exercise. If you've got hypertension or high cholesterol, treat it. Take a vitamin. I just told you, if you smoke, don't take a lot of beta-carotene, and drink alcohol in moderation. Okay. So, one other possibility, now, now uh, another possibility is the notion of telomerase therapy. Remember, telomerase 
is the enzyme that makes our telomeres longer, which keeps our cells thinking that they're young. And the possibility would be to have high levels of telomerase and consequently keep the cells young and keep our tissues healthy. The trouble with that is telomerase, high levels of telomerase are also connected with cancers. So that there's a balance here between having enough telomerase to keep your cells young and too much telomerase which will cause your cells to become cancerous. So there are advocates of telomerase uh, therapy at this point, but we actually don't know what the right level is. And finally, I'll come to this Manhattan Project. What would help telomerase therapy? So the idea is to actually somehow inject it into the cells. Yeah. Okay. So now I'll come to the Manhattan Project for Aging, which uh, to some extent is due to this guy, Aubrey de Grey, who's a geneticist at Cambridge, who says that we should really be thinking about strategies for engineering negligible senescence, which he calls SENS. And he envisions three levels of, in, of inter, interventions. Metabolism, some level of dietary restriction. I mean, dietary restriction we could call portion control, too, if we wanted to. Um, Dealing with damage, that is either repairing damage or removing damage, and dealing with pathology by replenishing cells that have become sick. And his vision of how we would do this is that we would use nanotechnology to clear damage. Nanorobots and other kinds of biomolecular aggregates would be, uh, of biomolecular tools would be used to clear damage. And we would use stem cell therapy to replenish tissues that have experienced a loss of cells or not. <clears throat> he has, uh, that is, uh, Aubrey de Grey has made a list of the various existing technologies to do this, none of which really do the job. But his goal is that uh, within about 25 years we should have the, such tools available. This is, of course, where the prediction becomes the most difficult. Okay. So what does the future look like for us? I think it looks something like this, that uh, we will probably continue to see an expansion of lifespan, and uh, we will have longer lives, which we already have. We have healthier lives, and we will have more involved lives. Um, whether this will get much past 120 or 130 for maximum human lifespan in the lifespan of any of us, uh, is, I think, is still a wide open question. Okay. My conclusions, why do we age? Well, because our ancestors' lives were short, right, or because the strength of natural selection declines post-reproductively. What causes us to age? The accumulation of damage due to a variety of sources that then gets expressed at the organismal level. What can be done about it? Well, avoid sources of premature aging and death, and then exercise and eat properly. Those are for sure, right? Antioxidant supplements and severe caloric restriction, well, those are less for sure. And telomerase therapy and uh, nanobiotechnology and stem cell therapy, I think, are on the horizon and are to be developed. And I thought I would actually give the last word here to Bob Dylan and Peter Mayle, and I thank you for your attention. And I would be happy to take any questions. Stan. Well, you could argue that there is a, uh, a force for aging in natural selection in that the next generation is waiting for us to get out of the way. Um, you could, uh, and I'm not, not sure I want to keep the whole group here disputing that. I, I think you can't make, uh, but, but that argument does actually not stand up very well. Be, be, oh, I, have yeah. a, I have a real question. Yeah, okay. Uh, we have a vast array of microbes in our gut with a whole other DNA. Right. Has there been any study of the effect of all of that uh, biological material that's not part of our 
particularly on aging and its implications for, I'm, uh, I'm sure there have, I, I don't know much about them, so I can't answer that. Yes? Uh-huh. Yes? Well, I mean, you know, you can go back to the vote. Uh, you know, so I think, I think that the people who voted there, oh, I may have missed it. Okay, the, the, the people who voted that it won't work or it's not likely to work are very concerned about that. You know, that uh, we already have a very long lifespan, have, have evolved a very long lifespan, and caloric restriction is, is not likely to extend it because of reasons like that. Oh, well, uh, that's a whole nother talk, actually, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's really a talk about the interaction of population and natural resource conservation. Yeah. And I have that talk, but it's not, <laughs> it, okay, yeah, that's right, it's, but, it, but it's really not the one here. I mean, you're absolutely right, you know, that, that associated with longer life is the problem of longer resource con uh, 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 longer resource consumption. Absolutely. Anand? Yeah, I, um, <coughs> there have been estimates of the selection gradient. There's a guy called Anatol Yashin the, the trouble is that our really extended long life is only in, in, in just the last 50 years. So there's really not the data to do it. And, this, and, the, same, and the same thing is really true with the f fertility. And the, uh, the demographic patterns of reproduction change very rapidly, even within a generation. And so I think it's going to be very difficult to do that. Oh, briefly. <laughs> um, in two sentences, sentence one is, yes, they, uh, they live a lifestyle which allows them to uh, have very low levels of energy expenditure. And they, they re reproduce only occasionally just when conditions are right. And the, and the consequence of that is they, um, they have evolved mechanisms to wait out those long, those right conditions because the North Pacific Ocean flip-flops over a 30-year period between conditions being right and conditions being bad. I'll be happy to send the paper to you. Cynthia? Right. Right. So, so those are mammals. So all those graphs were mammals. Now, when when one begins to, to do the interspecific comparisons that go across groups, then you need to be careful because actually, if you compare birds and mammals, for example, birds of the same weight as a mammal live much longer than. The, the mammal of the same size. <clears throat> so as you begin to think about uh, in, in broader interspecific comparisons, you need to be careful in thinking about the mechanisms. Does that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, <clears throat> that's right. So that's, that's, that's a very difficult thing to go between other species and humans. Yeah. Yes? Have they looked at like, like 
there have been some studies of those. Uh, there have been more studies of um, what are called the barren aristocrats. So uh, <coughs> there's, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence actually about the nuns and uh, the monks. And in fact, that's one of the, the problems that the church is having now in maintaining its finances is that very slow mortality. I don't know of, of specific studies of that, but there have been a number of studies on the cost of reproduction in people by comparing aristocratic lineages and survivors of uh, <coughs> survival of aristocrats who had children with those who did not. And there's a very clear effect of reproduction. But I don't know of a specific scientific study on the, the monks or nuns. Yeah, I think, there, I think uh, you know, we're getting more and more scientific studies that show evidence. We, we, <coughs> yeah, so, yeah, the, the question was, <coughs> uh, I, I did not show any results on mental activity at older ages and lifespan. Okay, and I might, I guess, that I wouldn't put that in the premature mechanisms of death, but that's another behavioral mechanism for maintaining a longer lifespan. That's a very good point. <coughs> ah, the so the question is, what's the level of activity of the individuals during cal caloric restriction? Uh, some of them are very lethargic. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, I mean, it's an interesting point of what you know, do you want to live 50% longer if all you're doing is sitting in your chase lounge? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I, I don't have any of those slides here, but that's really what this shows is that these very long-lived animals, both in rodents and some uh, invertebrates and worms, they're, they're, they're very long-lived, but they're done with reproduction, they're really done with activity, and they're just kind of doing nothing. Right? So the question is, how do you have a longer life and a more involved and a healthier life? And perhaps we should stop with formal questions now so people can sneak away. Thank you again for your attention.